I'm going to start a podcast in a minute. So you guys are going to have to be quiet. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, hang on a second. Hey, guys, for real, like if you're going to make noises. Today in this episode, we're going to be talking about how to be a killer parent. <laughs> Kids, can you please let me make my art? Welcome to Hey Creator, I'm Jeff Goins, and this is the mixtape for the creative class where we discover together what it is we're doing with our lives and with our art. Today is issue number eight, and the question here that we're going to answer is, should art be practical? This is in some ways an extension of our previous issue where we talked about what does it all mean? And how do you create something that means one thing to you and something else to someone else. Today, I want to explore the practicality of art and that the art of creating things is really about the art of living. In this episode, I am accompanied by my children. Hello, children. (laughs) Who promised the entire episode that they would be quiet while they played their video game on silent in the background. And they, <laughs> and they didn't listen. Hey there, Jeff here again. Uh, just a, a quick note. My kids did make a bunch of noise while we recorded this. And it created all kinds of drama. We had to stop recording for a little while. They cried. I had to go soothe them. And... While I was trying to make this point about art being an extension of your life and being just present to all of it, I realized that this lesson was playing out in front of me. And so we chose to let the kids talk and giggle in the background. At one point, my daughter got upset, went to her bedroom and cried. And I hope that this little little ditty here gives you permission to be more present to your life, to live fully into it and let your life inform your art and vice versa. What does one do? (laughs) How does one create a podcast? How do you, how do we, words. C.S. Lewis tells this story in one of his books that I thought was brilliant. And when I became a Christian in college, I was all about C.S. Lewis because I was an intellectual and he was an intellectual. And I was like, this isn't just for like dumb people, (laughs) you know, like this this isn't for like religion can actually be for intelligent people and you can have thoughtful responses uh, to, you know, this idea of a belief in an invisible man in the sky <laughs> judging your deeds. I, I mean, the caricatures of organized religion made and make sense to me. And, and when I found C.S. Lewis, I was like, oh, and G.K. Chesterton and a number of kind of like modern 20th century intellectuals who could explain profound theological ideas in practical what I found to be practical ways, which just meant accessible. 
So he had this metaphor, he had this analogy, I think it was in Mere Christianity, um, which is a really like good work of philosophy. The first two thirds of the book are, are, are simply an argument for theism. And in that book, he uses this literary analogy, which is basically you and I are all being delivered parcels and these parcels are called ourselves. I can observe in life that I have this thing called myself, my experience with the world, my own self-awareness, consciousness, right? I'm aware of that. I think, therefore, I am. This is the essence of, of kind of, you know, humanism, modern philosophy. It, it is a thing that we take for granted, which is I know that I'm here, or at least I'm pretty sure, right? It is a thing that most people take for granted. So Lewis just goes, cool. Like, he doesn't even talk about anything. He's not talking about Descartes or anything. He's just going, you and I can see that we receive a, a parcel in the mail uh, called myself. And when I explore myself, I don't know what yourself looks like. I don't know what the, the internal makeup of you, your soul, your, yourself, your, whatever you want to call it, your psyche. I don't know what that looks like inside of you. I know what it's like to interact with you or whatever, but I can see just through observation that I'm a human, you're a human. There are certain things I know about myself and it may be, it, it is quite probable, in fact, that as I learn more about myself, I learn something about you. Not everything, and obviously we're not the same person, but as I begin to understand my own humanity, as I sink down into the depths of my own being, I learn something about you right? It's a pretty good analogy, huh? Yeah, it's a good one. So I, as a newly converted Christian and verbal advocate of the faith, you know, somebody who is um, excited to share this new, like I, I've just discovered, you know, the secret to the mystery of the universe, you know, <laughs> like, let me tell you about it. So a few <laughs> weeks after reading this, uh, I am standing on a stage at a church in front of several hundred youth, teenagers. So after reading the C.S. Lewis quote, um, I go, oh, this makes so much sense. It was just like, wow, I never thought of it like that. So I'm standing on stage in front of an audience of like 500 teenagers after this youth group thing. And I'm a part of a worship band, a praise band, a, a, a music group. And we just played this show. And now we're standing out this church service, essentially. And this is like a Wednesday night and, you know, at a, a relatively small church in rural Illinois. And I step out on the stage and I deliver this message, a um, little sermon, right? Tell a little bit of my story. And then I share the C.S. Lewis story. But here's the thing. C.S. Lewis is, uh, is an academician. He's a professor. He's writing these essays that are their radio announcements that go out in the 1940s during World War II. That's that's why he wrote this book called Mere Christianity. And he's this British guy writing, a, you know, writing about life and God in the universe in the 1940s. So the word parcel feels a little outdated to me. So what do I do? I update it to package. Not really thinking this through very much. So I stand <laughs> on stage in front of 500 horny teenagers oh, no. raging with hormones. And these are like – this is this, this is like the church that is like trying to take all the 
bad kids, the worldly kids. You know, this is not, these are not 500 church going children. These are kids who are coming to the cool church to like play air hockey and basketball and, you know, make out behind the bleachers and eat candy bars and whatever. Like it's a cool <laughs> happening youth group kind of vibe. And they've got to sit through 20 minutes of music and, you know, 20 minutes of me telling them about life at, you know, and I'm all of 20 years old. Right. <laughs> and so I go, I can't say parcel. They don't really know what that means. I'm going to say package, right? And so I go, you've got a package and I've got a package. And when I look at my package, I learned something about your package. <laughs> oh my God. And they're just losing it. They're losing it. And I have <laughs> no idea. Like this is like my first speaking gig ever, you know? Like I'm really <laughs> excited about it. And, and, oh then, and then afterwards, I, I feel pretty good about it, you know? And there's like an altar call. Nobody comes forward. Whatever. It's fine. And then afterwards, <laughs> afterwards we're hanging out and the youth leader who was this 30 something woman who was super cool. She had like short hair. She, she dressed, she dressed like, like Ellen DeGeneres. Like she just, <laughs> that, 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 I mean, like, I think Ellen dresses cool. She's got like sneakers yeah. and like a pantsuit, whatever. Like she, she was cool. <laughs> and she comes up to me. And she goes, so the point is she's cooler than me. She comes up to me in her like Chuck Taylors or whatever. And she's, she's hanging with these kids every week, trying to like get them on the right path. And she comes up to me and she goes, Hey, great job. Good message. Well done. Um, just like maybe next time, you know, don't, don't use the word package in front of a group of teenagers. <laughs> and I go, <laughs> oh. <laughs> so do things mean whatever they mean? Uh, sure. And the very nature of creating something means that you're going to share something with a group of people at some point, with a person. And they might get it. They might not get it. It might mean something to them that you didn't intend. I'm plagued by this question of should art be practical? Can art be practical? I was talking to a, a client yesterday, a ghostwriting client, and he said, I can't stand books that only inspire you and don't give you any sort of practical application. And I actually feel the opposite. I think the laziest thing to do as a creative person is tell somebody else what to do. Hmm. And, and, and yet there's an entire industry um, of so-called literature based around this self-help, uh, which is really ironic because self-help isn't self-help. Self-help is advice, right? Like I'm going to tell you what to do because actual self-help would be opening up a space going, here's the problem, and here's maybe a different way of thinking about the problem, looking at the problem, and, and potentially exploring a solution without didactically telling you exactly what to do. And most self-help isn't that. Most self-help that is praised by its industry is like telling you exactly what to do. Step by step. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, it, instructions. It's, Right, like the subtitle of a nonfiction book is sort of braggadocious about this, right? It is 
it it is self-congratulatorily saying. <laughs> Sometimes I say words and I'm like, what are you? <laughs> One of my best friends will, will just hear me say things and he will go, you are such a pompous ass. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> speaking of self-congratulatorily saying things. Like a step-by-step guide to whatever, becoming X, Y, or C. I mean, I, I have written books that say things like that on the front cover. And yet I go, really? The older I get, the more I hopefully mature or just like the the grumpier I get, the more I wonder if the point of it all is to tell people what to do. And and if really the point is to help them trust themselves. Yeah, I like that. Well, isn't that really at, at its core? Isn't that really kind of what talk therapy is kind of getting you to open up to the point where you can get, get to know yourself a little bit better <laughs> to see the patterns? Well, one of my favorite poets, David White, um, whom I've quoted before, uh, says that Poetry, his definition of poetry is hearing yourself say things in the world that you didn't know that you knew. And one could argue that that's what therapy is, right? That it is actually, as you begin to hear yourself say things, you go, huh, how about that? And my experience of of therapy, especially six, seven years of of talk therapy before I got into um, more trauma informed work, somatic kind of stuff where you're, you're actually doing stuff with your body and connecting the, the brain to the rest of the body. What I realized was I was getting a set of tools that I could use all throughout the week. That, that really what I was getting in therapy from a counselor was a way of paying attention to my life and noticing my reactions to things and actually hearing myself say something to another person and then to have some sort of uh, awareness around it where I could go, what did you just say? <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, like, what did you just do? What is happening right now? And I suppose that the practicality of art is developing an awareness around your life, right? That that at its best, art is actually giving us an insight into who we are. And that good art is, is really a, a matter of um, taking the painting, the song, the story, the movie with you and um, internalizing it. And I, I don't know if I'm the only person who does this, but like what we call entertainment, you know, m- movies, novels, poems, music, we tend to think these things just have like a, a quote unquote entertainment value. The word amusement, right? The, I am amused by this. I went to an amusement park um, is, uh, you know, muse means to think, right? And so uh, amusement sort of means to like not think or to be like something that's amoral is neither immoral or uh, moral. It's just kind of is, right? And so something that is amusing is is in a sense a thoughtless experience, which I have heard people say like as a criticism, right? That was, you know, like 
an amusement park is a place where you don't, you're not thinking, you're not like, Hmm, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, <laughs> God, I'm hot or, you know, how much longer, <laughs> but there is actually something really beautiful, something Zen about not thinking, right? Like one could argue that flow is the space where you're not thinking about anything. You're just doing, you're acting. There is something impractical, inherently impractical about art, about creating anything. And, and I struggle with this when I think about making a new business, you know, starting a new business, creating a new blog, newsletter, bringing an idea into the world. I never quite know what it is. I, I doubt anyone ever told Monet, <laughs> make it practical, right? Uh, Adele said that the way that she writes songs is by locking herself in a room with a bottle of wine. And there's something just, you're, you're, you are in some ways going out and, and standing out in the middle of a, a rainstorm waiting for lightning to strike. And, and of course, we have to practice. We have to master our work. But we can't make it practical because that's not the point. Hey, creator, can you do me a favor? Help us reach more like-minded creators by sharing this show with a friend. I'm hearing from so many people that are enjoying the depth of these conversations, the creativity of the podcast, and we're just having fun trying to figure out together what this is, what it means, and how we can hopefully help more people with this content. But I could use your help in doing that. One of the easiest ways that you can actually help us reach more people, and it really does work. I know people say this, but it really does work that if you follow and leave a review, you follow this on whatever podcast app you're using, it will help us reach more people. All of the podcasting gods see that. They see the download numbers, people sharing it, and it will actually help the show rank better, especially in, in this first season, so that we can reach more people and, and get more people to tune in and share and support the show. So that is my plea. Please follow, share it, leave a review. Uh, that would help so much. And that's all I have to say about that. It's very interesting to me to hear how the work that I've done has impacted other people. I took the kids to the fair last weekend and somebody came up to me and he said, excuse me, are you Jeff Goins? And I used to get really excited about that. <laughs> excited slash embarrassed. And, and, and now I, I appreciate it. I, it's, it, it's an honor. Um, but I wonder what that means to them, right? Like which me mm. do they think that I am? <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, this has happened a couple of times recently where somebody's come up to me in public um, and they have thanked me for a book that I wrote called The In-Between. And what's so interesting to me about that is um, that that book was my, my worst selling book. Hmm. It, it was the quote unquote failure that led me to get like really serious about trying to hit a bestseller list. It was essentially my third book. I, I published two books in 2012, and then this came out in 2013, and I wanted to get more creative, and it was a memoir about 
about those in-between times in life, those moments of decision. And the subtle argument through all those stories was, you know, life happens in the in-between moments. So this guy comes up to me and he tells me about this book that he read called The In-Between. And he said it was really helpful to him when he and his wife were making a transition they were moving, and I think they were like transitioning out of like missionary work or something. I wish I could remember a little bit more, but we were at the fair trying to keep our children alive and endure mm. the Tennessee heat. <laughs> and that was interesting to me in light of the, the most recent conversation we've been having on this podcast about what does it all mean and, and, and a little bit about the practicality of art. And I'd like to take that a little bit deeper and explore the temptations of um, being so ethereal and esoteric that your art can mean lots of things to different people, um, but there's no real grounding, there's no real depth to it. Because... Um, it seems to me that, yes, art can mean whatever a person wants it to mean. Uh, I was uh, essentially a philosophy major in college. Uh, philosophy and religion were the same department, so I took a lot of philosophy and, and religion courses. And recently, I, I, I've just kind of gotten back into – I've gotten back into the um, – like some of the philosophical meanderings that – my Judeo-Christian context at the time precluded me from, um, you know, i.e. reading a lot of like Nietzsche and uh, the existentialists and all that fun stuff in the early 20th century. And I was reading about existentialism recently and I was like, oh, yeah, I might, <laughs> I might be an existentialist, you know? <laughs> Life is more or less means what you want it to mean. And... Maybe that's actually not true, right? This week, I I have this mountain bike that my ex-wife and uh, and and we had these matching mountain bikes that she purchased at Walmart our first year of marriage. And after we got divorced, I took the mountain bike with me, and I have a mountain bike course by my apartment. And I and I'd gone a couple of times, and then a friend of mine who's really into mountain biking gave me his bike, which needs to be repaired. So I had two mountain bikes. And so I, I took the old mountain bike and I put it, I saw that people in the parking garage would keep their bikes in, in the garage, right? And they wouldn't chain them up or anything. And I didn't want to, it's, you know, it's hard to have a bike in an apartment. Mm -hmm. And so I just left the bike in there for like four months <laughs> and didn't ride it or like maybe rode it once in a while. And it just stayed there every day. I saw it, I parked my car, walked past it. I go, hi bike. You know, it was in this part of the, like a little corner of the parking lot where other people's bikes were. It was, it literally sat there for like four months and I came back the other day and it was gone. No kidding. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I thought, huh. And so I thought, well, maybe I should contact the office and go, you know, do you guys have like a lost and found or something? And then, and, and then the non-existentialist part of me thought, oh, maybe this means something. Maybe that, maybe that is, <laughs> maybe I am being existentialist. I don't know. <laughs> but, but I thought, oh, this thing, this relic from a former life that represents a, a former bond that has been dissolved is gone. Somebody took it. 
it, it, it disappeared. Something happened. Somebody moved it. I don't know. I, I imagine because <laughs> people are kind of constantly moving in and out. Either somebody just took it, threw it in a moving truck, or or somebody saw that that bike sat there for four months and thought this guy is not going to miss it. I'm going to take it. Twelve <laughs> year old Schwinn. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. I mean, it was actually very interesting. I was like, well, I have another bike. I don't need a bike, and it was quite symbolic to me how I sometimes hold on to old seasons of my life, and and life has a way of just going. Nope, this is over now. You need to let this go. Hmm. So maybe that's me making meaning out of it. But, <laughs> but it does probably belie the fact that in spite of my esotericism, I do think that there there is some sort of universal meaning that we're trying to tap into. And And what exactly is that? I don't know, <laughs> but it's there somewhere, you know, it's, it's out there. I thought you had the answer. <laughs> I have, I, I have an answer. It just keeps changing. <laughs> oh, I like that. Here's what I think is true. As an artist, if you are creating something that has no depth to it, that has no meaning for you, it will not work. It is not grounded. And you can do that. You can do that. Uh, I would say that that a lot of the self-help industry is based around being very, very practical. Do this, do that, go here, do that. That is, that is one side of the spectrum, which is a lot of groundedness. Like you are on Jupiter or something where the weight of the gravity is so heavy that you can't even jump. You can't even like lift your feet off the ground. And as a result, you will live closely to the ground. You will live a, a life where you can clearly see your steps, you know, moving in, in one direction, but you won't get to fly. And on the other side of the spectrum of practicality, you can be so out there that nobody knows what the hell you're saying. And people are making up all kinds of reasonings for the stuff that you're creating. And at the end of the day, it's it's just blown in the wind. And all of the most impactful work that I've done, not necessarily the most popular work, sometimes popular work, but the most impactful work has been the stuff that matters the most to me. And I've put it out into the world and it matters deeply to other people, but not in the ways that I expected it to matter, not in the ways that I thought it would matter. The word profound means deep, right? And there is something to sinking deep into yourself that allows you to tap into what Jung called the collective unconscious, that space where you know things you didn't know you knew. And when you do that, when you connect to that space in yourself that feels like, like you can feel a visceral bodily experience, you go, oh, that, that feels right. I always wrote because it made me feel good. Like it just felt good. It felt good to write a poem and express. It actually felt the sensation of like telling a story or exploring an idea or crafting a song or whatever, getting words to rhyme or t 
telling a joke, like doing something, the act of doing it for me felt good or I felt something. Sometimes it felt sad and that felt good too. I think it feels good to feel things. And so the practicality of art I'm learning is it has to mean something to you. And if it means something to you, it'll mean something to someone else, but probably not what you thought. So the very nature of making art practical is finding out what it means to you. Sinking down deep into who you are, what this thing means to you, going to that true place, and then sharing it from that place. And then you have to let it be whatever it is to people. And some people will maybe understand your original intention. Some people will completely miss it. And some people will find something else. And I think the, the most powerful art is that. Charles Manson swore that in the song Helter Skelter was a hidden meaning for an upcoming race war and justified mass murder uh, because of this so-called inspiration. If you've ever watched the Imagine film, there's a film about John Lennon, and there's this scene that I remember, and I watched this as a kid with my dad. We watched it on VHS, but there's this scene where somebody has found his house, one of his houses, I think, in like rural England. And, and somebody comes to his house and like knocks on his door and says, I, I get it. I get what it all means, you know? And, and he's just like effusive with his praise of John and the Beatles and all of their music. And, and John just kind of like nicely sends him on his way and he goes, hey man, those are just songs. They're just songs. And so I think we have to think through a few things. One, we are not responsible for what people do with our art. Two, we are responsible for making something true from a true place inside of us. Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. And so should art be practical? I have found that art is best expressed when it's an extension of my life. And what meditation has taught me is you have to be present to whatever's happening in life when you're trying to change everything. That is not fun because you can't. When I try to control everything, when I try to get my kids to stop interrupting me, <laughs> that's when you know the most interruptions come. And yet I notice that I can get swept up in that. Like I can get pulled into that drama, which causes chaos. And creation comes from chaos, but creation is not chaos. And if I if I try to control too much on the on the opposite side, if I try to like force it, like try to get my kids to be absolutely quiet uh, while I'm working, that doesn't work. You know, when I try to get <laughs> when I try to get myself to be absolutely quiet. Right? When I try to control every aspect of my life and, and sterilize it all, the art that comes from that life, you know, like that's like overly produced. I'm scheduling every minute of my day. I'm not allowing the chaos to be what it is. I'm not allowing life to life at me, right? Life is what happens. It's what 
is happening when you're making other plans because life is always happening. Life is change. That doesn't work either when I'm trying to control everything in terms of creating inspiring work. The most inspired work that I create comes from a place of deep groundedness in the midst of everything that's happening. I'm not neglecting life, but I'm letting it be what it is. And I'm also staying focused on, on what I want to create. And when you do that, which is the most practical form of, of art there is, it is practical in the sense that people can put it into practice. People can can feel the depth of that. Right? They can they can feel the the love that comes from heartbreak, from grief. Right. This it's honoring what happens. And I think what I'm trying to say is if on one end of the spectrum of creative work, which for me is largely writing, on one end of the spectrum is kind of vague, esoteric, this means whatever you want it to mean. And then on the other end of the spectrum is here's an explanation for everything you might encounter in life. I find that there's a third way for me that that does seem more meaningful and more beautiful. I watched a movie recently. It was a Woody Allen film with Joaquin Phoenix. And there is a great quote in that film. It's called Irrational Man. It's about a philosophy professor. And somebody is, everybody thinks he's brilliant, thinks his character is brilliant. And there is a line in the film where they go, I don't actually think he's brilliant. I just think he's good with words. <laughs> this is the thing that I'm actually trying to guard against. I don't want to just be good with words. I don't want to just say pretty things. I want to say things that matter and have meaning. And what that really means is creating stuff that matters to me, that has meaning to me, where I'm, actually, I'm sinking down deep into something true I'm tapping into that. And because it resonates with me, it finds a place of resonance, moves me, it connects to other people. For a long time, I tried to control my life. And the art that came from a controlled life didn't have a lot of depth to it. And then there was a season where I rebelled against that. And I created something completely ungrounded, too ethereal. And that was hard to connect with as well. I mean, you can see the, the visuals, right? Something floating in the air versus something on the ground. And I like the space in between. You know, I like being able to to jump up and glide through the air and then come back down to earth. Stephen King wrote in his memoir on writing, I used to think that life was a support system for art. Now I realize that it's the other way around. And I love that quote. I, I use it often. But I think they both support each other. Art imitates life. Life imitates art. And and we just keep going. Yeah. The Uroboros. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, is that the snake eating itself? Yeah. I love that image. It's all gross for the mill. There's a film that I saw recently about a a man who's a time traveler. And you find out in the film that he is his own father and mother and enemy. It's a time travel <laughs> film. And 
the name for that particular plot device is called something like a temporal loop mm. where like he has to keep going back in time to tell his former self to go back in time and meet him. I mean, it's, it's very, it's very, it's a good movie. I'm not going to tell you that the name of it so that if somebody finds that film, they don't have it ruined the ending for them. Cause you don't <laughs> find all this out until the end, but it's kind of interesting where every piece of the puzzle informs the other. So here I am making stuff in the midst of my daughter having a breakdown because she can't play her video games with the music on. Um, yeah, I couldn't help but think about just that idea of kind of the perfection of imperfection and embracing uh, entropy. Right. So... When I'm making things and I'm disconnected from the chaos that is life, when I'm ignoring my daughter versus letting her be, right? Like you can let a child rage and scream and cry and say, this isn't fair and I want this and I want that. And just let it be what it is because what's happening is the emotions are actually just moving through the body. And it's fascinating to me how when I let my children do this, two or three, sometimes five, sometimes 10 minutes later, they come back and they're fine because it has been fully expressed. But for a long time, I would try to control that, change that. And I was getting caught up in it. So when I'm present to it, I don't ignore it. I let it be what it is. Something beautiful comes from it. And I think art is really about letting things be what they are, but noticing them, being present to them, sinking down deep into the truth of the experience not trying to change it, not rounding off all of the edges, but also not getting caught up in it, if that makes sense. I think it works when you use it. It doesn't work when you ignore it. What I have learned from many years of therapy and trauma and, and life and healing is if you pretend it's not there, you push it down like a beach ball in the ocean, it just pops up somewhere else. But if you acknowledge it, you own it, you tell a story about it, you use it as an inspiration for a painting, it takes on a different dimension. You alchemize it, you turn it into something. And I, I do think meaningful art is that, right? Man's Search for Meaning is a book <laughs> about a guy who, whose wife died in the concentration camps that almost killed him too, right? And Viktor Frankl said one of the things that kept him alive was the belief that he was going to meet his wife on the other side. She was dead. But the belief, the thought that someone out there is waiting for me kept him alive. The very things that ground us in the work that we do can also be distractions. They can be things that we go, if I could just be left alone, right? <laughs> if I could just be left alone to create my art, I'd be fine. If everybody would just agree with me, I'd be fine. If everybody just got this, I'd be fine. When I was writing that book, The In-Between, I was working with an editor on it. And she said to me, her name was Anne. She said to me, because I had said, I'm worried that people won't get this. This is so different 
from the work that I've done before that I just, I'm worried that it's not going to work. It's not going to land. And she said to me, she's probably, I don't know, a decade older than me. Her kids were, uh, you know, teenagers entering adulthood kind of thing. And I had like just had our first child, I think. And she said, the older I get, the more I realize I have no advice to offer and only stories to tell. And this was something a mentor had told her, tell your stories. The greatest advice is found in a story that, that isn't completely practical, that doesn't, that doesn't get wrapped up with a bow. And so I think art becomes incredibly practical when we sink down deep into the experience of being human and create something from that place. When we tell stories based on reality, right, that are grounded in beingness, in life, in living. And then from that place, try to fly. Right? Flight, flight has no significance without the ground, right? Otherwise, you're just kind of swept up and tossed back and forth like a, like a, like a feather in the wind or something. So should art be practical? I don't think that's the right question. I think the right question is, who do you want to practice this truth you're trying to share? Practical means that it can be put into practice. So on one hand, I don't think we should strive to be practical. On the other hand, I don't think we should simply be wanting to create pretty things for the sake of pretty things. And and who's to say if I'm right or wrong? Maybe that that is the right thing for a certain person. But what I find to be the most meaningful way of creating and, and my tool of choice is words, I don't want those words to just be pretty flowery words. I want them to be pretty flowery words. I love pretty words. But I also want them to be something more. I want them to be grounded in experience. I want them to come from a true place in me so that they can connect to a true place in another person. The word guru means no darkness. And so that word has been co-opted you know, by the self-help industry to mean essentially coach or guide, like a person who tells you what to do. But the truth is the best gurus don't actually tell you what to do. They tell you what not to do. Nope, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. The, the Hindu term, the Indian term for it is neti neti, um, which means not this, not this, not this, not that, right? It's, it's, it's not this, it's not that, it's something else. The truth that you're seeking is indescribable. It is ineffable. But in the connection to life, we find something true and meaningful. And when we share that, it connects to something true and meaningful in, in someone else. And what that means and, and how they apply it, how they put it into practice, well, that's up to them. And so can you create impractical art? Probably. But the best way to do that is, is to simply not connect to something true in yourself. And so I think some of the most so-called practical self-help advice out in the world is actually quite impractical because it's not based in any real substantive living. It's just an idea that somebody regurgitated from someone else. And so I found the best way to be practical is to just get into life and begin to experience life. But that's why the concept of being a creator has become so meaningful to me. I'm not just a creator of a business or of a, a book or piece of so-called art. I'm also the creator of my life. And as I create more work, it informs the life that I want to live because it comes from my life. So every time I'm creating something, it's telling me something about my life. And if I'm making stuff, 
that other people are connecting with and putting into practice, I go, oh, hey, I guess this is practical. <laughs> <laughs> like I wrote, I wrote the least practical book I'd ever written. It didn't sell well. And it has been the book recently that the most people have come up to me and said, thank you for this book that I wrote eight years ago. And so I think the best way to be practical is to live. What else is there? What is more practical than living? To live and to create from a life that is true and honest, to honor and acknowledge the crying kid in the background, the three hours of sleep that you got, the, the abuse that comes from your childhood that informs how you show up in your life every single day, one way or the other to honor it without necessarily getting stuck in it, without, you don't have to relive it. And, and that's not to say there isn't healing, there isn't growth, and there aren't times to just sit down and do the work. But I think we do the work in a way that is informed by our life, that is not rejecting the life. One of the best reflections that I got from a friend on me was she said, as long as I've known you, you've been rejecting who you were to become who you want to be. And I'm just waiting for you to accept who you've been all along. And one of, and a beautiful thing that's happening in my life right now is I look at the work that I created um, when I started being a writer, right? And I'm not embarrassed by it anymore. For a while, I was. I was like, no, 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 I want to do something better. I want to do this grander. You know, I want to go delete all that stuff, hide that stuff because I'm better than that now. And now I look at it and I go, wow, thank you. Or even like what I was trying to do a year ago, what I was trying to do at the beginning of this podcast, I go, thank you for helping me get here. And as I go a little bit further down the road, I'll, I'll be grateful for everything that I didn't know at this point that I know then. Because what, what, a, what a silly thing to do, you know? It, it'd be like looking at, you know, my five-year-old going, why don't you act like you're 12 or 20 or 50? Right? <laughs> mm -hmm. We do that with, with the things that we create. We go, why don't you help more people? Why don't you sell more copies? Why don't you be more practical? I think art is most practical when it comes from a true life. And a true life is simply one where you're there for it. You're, you're aware of, of what's happening. And that's why all artists eventually become philosophers. But philosophers rarely become artists. Because when you get into creation, you're getting into life. It is the essence of life. Art is imitating life. Sentimentalized failure. You know, the map I don't want to see. I get lost, dig out the map and unfurl it against the steering wheel. At some point, everything is a reckoning. I loved, I laughed. I had no idea I had to show up. I wanted someone to say, oh, you're doing such a good job. The shame, my endless lack, the churning herd of wild horses I called my sense of self. That was a blackout poem that we actually featured in a previous Hey Creator newsletter called Sentimentalized Failure, and it was curated by Kelly Belmonte. 
So what does it mean to make your art practical? I don't know. I think it means tapping in to your soul, yourself, your truth, being aware and present to this life that you're living, the only life that you get, the only one you've been given, opening that parcel, connecting with it, seeing what it has to behold, realizing that there are always greater depths, there's always more meaning than that you can get out of yourself. And that as you explore that, as you become a pioneer of your own soul, you understand something about what it means to be human. And as you create from that place of awareness, of presence to your own life, you're saying something to the rest of us about what it means to be human. You are simply giving us permission to explore ourselves, which is the only thing we have, like the closest reality. And so the kids may laugh or cry in the background and you can be present to that. You may succeed or fail. And again, the goal is to be there for it all. Thank you for tuning in to this issue of Hey Creator. I'm Jeff Goins. The show is produced by yours truly in conjunction with Kelton Reed and New Media Dojo. Our theme music is One Night in Las Vegas by Arthur Bassov with additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. For extra goodies, all kinds of bonuses, you can go to heycreator.me to sign up for a free newsletter. A new issue drops every single Tuesday and you can follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time. Keep it groovy, kids. Children, we have got to be quiet. I know. Life, man. <laughs> what are we going to do with this episode? How to train your kids. How to train your kids. That's a great idea.